Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. This week, we reach across the Pacific to speak to Vasuki Shastri. He's a Washington, D.C.-based senior fellow at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and an associate Asia-Pacific fellow at the Policy Institute Chatham House in London. We reached out to talk about his new book, provocatively entitled, Has Asia Lost It? A surprising headliner at a time when many would say the Pacific era is upon us and Asia is most certainly on the rise. Vasuki disagrees. On the face of it, he says, things look good. For instance, in just four short decades, the region has climbed its way out of poverty. Political and economic risk remains low. Vast wealth has accrued, and China has assumed superpower status. Not too shabby. What we're facing now, he says, is peak Asia. Scratch beneath the surface and you see two systems, one that caters to the elites and one that controls the average citizen. Opportunities and upward mobility is diminishing, and unless Asia breaks the bonds of economic integration with the West through trade and manufacturing, it may never realize its potential. With talk of further decoupling, the pressure is on Asian leaders to change, and fast. Long-distance interviews have their challenges, and in this instance, our audio feed was less than optimal. We hope the quality of the conversation makes up for it. But first, a quick thanks to our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now my conversation with Vasuki. Vasuki Shastri, thank you so much for joining me on Inside Asia. You're speaking to me today from the East Coast of the United States, are you not? That's right. I'm, I'm speaking to you from the greater suburbs of Washington, D.C. And Steve, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure, Vasuki. It's a pleasure. What prompted you to write a contrarian tale? Yeah, you know, I've been uh, obsessed about Asia for the last 30 years uh, due to my professional career, my journalism career. I've been in the region, even though I haven't lived in the region uh, uh, since 1998. I've been in and out uh, literally every month. And, you know, for the better part of uh, these three decades of my uh, exploration and experience in Asia, I've been a big uh, fan. I mean, I've always thought this is the most dynamic region in the world. This is the region that could be a role model for developing countries in uh, Africa, Middle East, and Latin America. And I always thought of Asian leaders as being very progressive, very pragmatic, doing the right economic uh, thing, not getting weighed down by political ideology. And it was this pragmatism, I think, that led to the first Asian miracle, uh, uh, where Japan and the Asian tigers emerged really uh, uh, from penury and low-income status. And so, you know, I had a lot of expectations that this Asian journey would continue. Uh, but I've become somewhat more distressed in the last decade, uh, and I'm beginning to see evidence of poor political leadership, a business class that seems to be obsessed with uh, accumulating wealth at the, at the expense of everything else. And then you know, you've got this uh, growing evidence of stalled social mobility, which is really the rocket fuel uh, that made the Asian miracle possible. So you've been uh, distressed, uh, uh, and, and obviously I did not want to write a polemical piece 
without assembling the evidence. We've spent the better part of the last three, four years looking at the evidence. And the evidence is not hard to find. And for me, that's the most startling aspect of, of the uh, challenges that Asia faces. And of course, in my book, I focus on developing Asia rather than developed Asia. But the evidence is staring at us, but very few people are really connecting the dots. You know, Pansuki, what changed? What, what, what prompted these uh, shifts? I, I think there are a couple of macro factors. There are a couple of political factors. And I think one uh, 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 benchmark to use is really the Asian financial crisis of 97-98, which was a wake-up call uh, for Asia. This, was, you know, this came at a time when a lot of people were talking about Asia shining in the 1990s. Uh, but Paul Krugman, uh, the American economist, uh, created a huge amount of controversy in 1994 when he said that the Asian miracle was really built on perspiration rather than inspiration. And when he meant perspiration, he essentially meant uh, the, the availability of cheap labor made high economic growth rates possible. But this could not be sustained because ultimately, uh, if you want to uh, rise up the economic ladder, uh, you've got to use productivity, you've got to use innovation. And he didn't see very little evidence of that, particularly in Southeast Asia. And, and Southeast Asia was, of course, the epicenter of that financial crisis. Now, Asia has lo- learned a lot of good lessons coming out of 1997-98. Uh, Obviously, the region was insulated from the global financial crisis of 2008. So that's a big plus. But what's been happening over the last decade, and if you really look at perhaps Indonesia, Bangladesh as examples, and and they're more prominent examples, we can talk a lot more about India, Uh, but these two countries really stand out for me. Uh, Now, Indonesia was uh, uh, growing at tiger-like growth rates uh, before the Asian crisis of 97. Economic growth has essentially stalled in the period since then. And, you know, uh, there is a big debate amongst uh, economists on whether economic growth rates are important. I believe it's important, but I think we, uh, policymakers also need to focus on the quality of growth. They need to focus a little bit of, on whether uh, the growth is having the right amount of social impact. So Indonesia has never been able to grow more than 5% over the last decade. And and when you visit Jakarta, when you visit uh, the provinces, you do see evidence that this rather anemic growth rate for a developing country is not translating into social mobility, which was, you know, President Suharto, for all of his faults, one of his biggest achievements was ensuring some semblance of social mobility. If you look at Bangladesh in contrast, right, very high rates of economic growth, Indeed, uh, Bangladesh's per capita GDP is today higher than India's, which makes a lot of Indians uh, extremely unhappy. Uh, But at the same time, uh, uh, the Bangladesh story is built on cheap wages, it's built on textiles, it's built on ship breaking. And and you're you're seeing a lot of companies really paying uh, very little attention to economic and social standards. So, yes, you've got very high rates of economic growth in Bangladesh. Is that translating into social outcomes? I think it's highly debatable. You know, I I think you've raised something important, which is we can't 
think of Asia as one homogenous region. Um, it's broken up into all kinds of different uh, uh, aspects of development or, or degrees of development and change. So, But I, I think generally what I want to do is just break down what you just said. Are you suggesting that you know the predictions from the mid-1990s, more perspiration, uh, it was, was really what this is all about and that story remains true today? Or do you see evidence of Asia or, or pockets of Asia evolving to become more innovative and therefore having a greater chance of making the, the leap necessary? Yeah, I think when we talk of Asia, we're talking about a geographical abstraction. At least that's what uh, Singapore diplomat Bilahari Kausikan says in the jacket of my book. And so we need to really disaggregate what we mean by Asia. Certainly, I'm not worried about developed Asia. When I say developed Asia, I talk about Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. I think they've really progressed. They've got the resources for any upcoming challenges. And indeed, I think many of the challenges that uh, developed Asia faces has a lot to do with aging and uh, demographics. Uh, Within developing Asia, this vast region constituting the bulk uh, of the uh, 4.4 billion population. Uh, you see differences, right? So you've got middle-income countries like China, very, very keen uh, uh, to, to make it to developed country status. And indeed, I think the drama for the next 20 years that we are going to witness is whether or not China has the ability, has the right policies uh, to make it to developed country status. And, and the argument that I make in the book is it's not an economic story alone. China needs to focus on social, political factors uh, where it is lagging. And, and so is Vietnam. You know, Vietnam is today the poster child uh, for, for uh, uh, big business, as well as the academic think tank community who see Vietnam as the next tiger. But on economic factors alone, yes, I mean, I think Vietnam has made a lot of progress. But if you come to the social political factors that very few people pay attention to, that is where the fault could have predicted. For example, uh, the protests in Hong Kong, none of us could have predicted the sustained protests that we are seeing in Myanmar, as well as what uh, transpired in, in Thailand last year. So you've got this carrier of educated college graduates, uh, and I don't want to uh, oversimplify, uh, obviously, the protests in Thailand, very, very different in nature compared to what we've seen in Hong Kong. But I think they all link together with the lack of social mobility, the lack of job opportunities. And if Asia really is going to fulfill its promise of being uh, uh, the region that really shows the world how to do economic growth and how to sustain sustain development. I think innovation and technology is important, but at the same time, I, I would argue social outcomes are equally important. You know, there's there's a double uh, entendre in your in your in your writing. You you say at one hand, hand that the um, Asia's success has been hyped to a large degree. At the same time, you refer refer to this moment as peak Asia. Which is it? I mean, has is it both? Um, and and are is this an inevitable uh, uh, summiting? And will the decline come by virtue of uh, the fact that the policies have not evolved to the degree that they needed to in order to sustain this kind of economic growth? Yeah, you know, the, the concept of peak Asia really is 
that growth has peaked and what we saw in Latin America in the 1970s uh, may or may not happen in Asia. I mean, I, I tend to take a slightly more optimistic view that Asian policymakers can build on this good growth story by focusing on social outcomes, by focusing on social mobility, making sure, for example, that entrepreneurship is encouraged and, and cherished, that you know, Asia needs all the billionaires uh, uh, that it can get. But at the same time, you've got to make sure that this billionaire class is not subverting public policy at the expense of the public interest. And it is these kinds of soft issues. These are regarded as soft issues uh, compared with you know, harder macroeconomic and financial policies that governments have to implement. And so you know, it all comes down to uh, do governments in developing Asia have the right level of social compact with their populations? And I would argue that that compact is fraying. And we're seeing evidence of this compact fraying through protests in the street. And, and we've seen farmer protests in India. Uh, and you know, we just talked about Hong Kong, Thailand, and Myanmar. And uh, the difference really is, you know, in, in, in India, the protests are coming from poor and rich farmers, because the farming class believes that uh, their rights and privileges are going to get impacted with reforms. Uh, we spoke about the massification of college education across Asia. Uh, so, you know, governments need to create those quality jobs. It all comes down to technology and innovation. So you need a little bit more, and I hate to, hate to use the word central planning, uh, but you need a little bit more coordination from governments to make sure that all the economic growth uh, that they are enjoying through the statistics, uh, make sure that there's a little bit of distribution across all income classes. So when I hear you talk, it sounds like many of the issues that are faced by Asia are faced in the rest of the world. Economic disparities, income equalities, social injustices, albeit at different levels under different circumstances. But what is uniquely Asian here? I mean, what, what are you pinpointing um, that, that actually makes the situation for Asia worse than elsewhere in the world? You're absolutely right, uh, Stephen, saying that Asia's problems uh, uh, there are there are parallel, parallels and similarities with uh, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in the U.S. And certainly, my own experience of living in London through Brexit, of of uh, living in uh, Washington D.C. at the tail end of the Trump era, has colored my judgment and thinking about what is happening in Asia. Uh, my first point is we need to place Asia on a higher pedestal, mainly because Asia has been a role model for the rest of the world for the past few decades. And if you're an African central banker, indeed, if you're an African businessman, trying to figure out which part of the world uh, can I get the best ideas from, you know, the person goes to Singapore or Hong Kong or China. And, and so Asia has been the role model, so we need to place it on a higher standard. This is also a region with 4.5 billion people, a huge percentage of the world's population. So the stakes are incredibly high in Asia compared with other parts of the world. And every global problem that we can think of, you know, so climate change is one example, uh, uh, the solution really can be found in Asia. If India, China, and uh, uh, Indonesia 
come together with an aggressive plan for achieving net zero emissions. I, I think one can convincingly say that the global climate change problem is going to be solved. So, you know, so Asia in many ways is, is both the role model as well as the epicenter for some of the problems that the world is facing today. And that's why I worry a little bit that our policymakers uh, be behind the loop. I see. I see. Is it fair to say that your greatest overarching concern for this part of, world, of the world is the prospect of deglobalization? In other words, the region's rise can be largely attributed to the outsourcing of labor and uh, intense production. As demand flattens or manufacturers are called to home markets, will that mark the beginning of the end for Asian economic progress? Yeah, you know, I don't want to make these dire prognostications. Uh, uh, but, you know, if you look at globalization, trade, and investment, this has been Asia's secret sauce. Uh, this is really going back to the 1960s, uh, when Japan started exporting transistors and the first version of the Datsun car. Uh, Asia's access, integration with the global economy, with global markets, has really enabled it to increase economic growth, reduce poverty, and being in many, in many respects the greatest economic show on earth. What is going to change in the next few decades? And I think the pandemic is giving us clues on, on which way um, economic policy is going to change. And we've seen already, uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of regions in Europe and the US would be one example, who, who are thinking of reshoring medical supplies who really talking about self-sufficiency, self-reliance in, in emergency supplies so that you're not dependent on a single source, in this case, China, at a time of crisis. So, and, and then you've got this entire US-China trade war, uh, which, which is very unpredictable in the way it's going to play out. Uh, because a lot of people talk about decoupling, and, and in many respects, decoupling may already be happening because I think uh, 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 many Western companies, for example, are looking at Vietnam now as the, as the final assembly point for their products. China used to be the final assembly point. It's probably an argument that wages in China have risen too high, that you need an alternative uh, destination like Vietnam. So you're beginning to see signs that this decoupling is going to have an impact. And depending on the intensity of the U.S.-China Cold War, uh, uh, the worst thing that can happen for Asia really is this vision between a Chinese sphere of economic influence and an American sphere of economic influence, uh, where the region essentially gets divided, supply chains get divided. And, and that's the worst case scenario for the region. Yeah. And I guess these are certain external factors you just can't plan for. But those internal factors, which I think you reference in your book um, and in the whole core of the book, um, are really, you know, what can be done. And and this you, and I, I really like some of the areas we're going to talk in a minute about you know, the structure of the book. It, but you refer to Asia's old men, uh, the middle class trap, uh, urban cowboys, uh, the death of Bali. And I guess in each of these, you're addressing certain structural issues or policy deficits or deficiencies which are actually imploding right now and creating problems uh, that you, I think, are saying are preventable, are they not? Uh, all of this is preventable with good economic policy. So if you go back to first principles of Asian, Asia all, always having progressive, pragmatic leadership 
who look at economic issues not through an ideological lens, uh, then these problems are resolvable. But we're seeing year after year, and I think Asian, there's something peculi- peculiar about Asia's political leadership. And, and this is uh, uh, across dictatorships, across democracies. Uh, you're seeing this aging class of leaders who really are disconnected from the aspirations of their uh, population. Uh, certainly in India and Indonesia, population is skewing younger, uh, but the politic- political class tends to be very old. And I think a lot of people say that you know India's political leader, for example, is on Twitter and Facebook and has uh, 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 millions and millions of followers. But we should not mistake presence on social media platforms really as as a substitute for being able to connect the electorate. And uh, so, you know, in Africa, there's to be the big man problem. I think Asia is going through a similar one. Asia needs, I think, a disruption in uh, political leadership where you have a younger generation, perhaps those born in the 1970s, who should be taking over. Well, I, I think you know this brings me to an interesting question about the the the, uh, the something that inspired you for the book, which was Dante, uh, the author of the Divine Comedy. Uh, he's an inspiration for you, and you you structured it like I say the the eight circles of hell, you know, at and and at, at the core of the book, which sounds pretty dark. Uh, but I I'm just curious, do you fancy yourself a bit of a modern day Dante? No, I mean absolutely have no pretensions of being. Uh, the 21st century version of Dante. I don't think I have the poetry and philosophy skills that the great master had. But what I found interesting about Dante is if you can read his works as political allegory rather than just the theological one, and down the centuries, people tend to look at Dante and consider uh, uh, this to be mainly a theological tract about how societies uh, deteriorate uh, because of their lack of uh, focus on religion. Uh, my interest in Dante has always it's been a long-standing one from, from high school. So when I was trying to think of an organizing principle for the book, and I was seeing this real sharp divide in perspective between a person like Pramod, the auto rickshaw driver I mentioned in the book, who really helped open my eyes on, on his world, of, of living in, in a shanty town in Mumbai uh, with very little access to basic services at a time when the Indian economy was powering ahead at uh, 8%. So I thought these circles of hell, and you know, I did do some research and you know, both in Hindu uh, as well as uh, uh, Chinese uh, philosophy, there are articulations of hell, uh, but I, I, I found the Dantean version much more accessible. And that's when I thought of Asia's problems from the perspective of someone who's not benefiting from high rates of economic growth, of really living in hellish conditions. And, and one does not have to try too hard. I hope uh, when readers read the book, uh, they see that you know an urban migrant or a teenage girl living in developing Asia, the struggles that they go through is, is the proximate version of hell. 
Are you anticipating or do you believe that once we go through the process and through these circles and better understand them and maybe become a little more self-reflective, that the opportunity then presents itself to get it back? Or do you believe that there's the, we've reached a point of no return? In other words, uh, has, the Asia, has Asia, as you point out earlier on, has it peaked? Yeah, I think the current path is unsustainable. And, uh, you know, one can be optimistic or pessimistic. But I think the point is many of Asia's problems are resolvable through domestic policy. They're resolvable through a political class that really resets the economic, political, and social policy, has a better connection uh, with, with, with the general public. And indeed, I mentioned in the book that Asia need, needs a reset of its values and articulate uh, uh, values that uh, Asian leaders should embrace uh, and really for a- the Asian public to be placing pressure on the political masters uh, to enforce this set of uh, universal values. So you, this is not an issue. You know, the Asian financial crisis, one could arguably say, originated uh, uh, from Asia, but the reason why the problem really became acute is because Asia because it exposed Asia's dependence uh, to foreign investors. This is a very different type of problem uh, uh, because it really focuses on the hopes and aspirations of young people, and and this is where political interventions uh, can really help. And if political inter- interventions really don't work, we're going to see what we're seeing in Myanmar today, where you know this is a country that. Uh, uh, where the majority of the country's population is invested in the idea of democracy. And the army came in on February 1st uh, and, and has essentially subverted that process com- completely, is using brutal tactics uh, to suppress the population. But we're seeing uh, in these young protesters in Yangon and other, uh, uh, and other urban centers of the country, their ability to wake up every morning and protest despite the odds and despite the simple fact that many of them can be killed. So when, if you look at the determination of the street in Asia, and I really worry that we're setting ourselves up for a prolonged period of social unrest. Mm-hmm. You know, if you overlay the, the COVID-19 situation, um, would you say that that has further exposed some of the weaknesses uh, in these markets? Or do you believe that it's allowed or provided a time of reflection in order to, in order to perhaps get things right? I think COVID-19 and uh, climate change are the two great accelerators uh, which Asia really needs to watch out for. And I think the pandemic is going to play out and hopefully uh, uh, a rapid pace of vaccinations will lead to herd immunity and normal conditions will return to Asia uh, uh, perhaps later in the year. But, you know, pandemics like natural disasters and economic crises have long lasting impacts. And, and we really, it's very un- unpredictable to know what kind of impact uh, this pandemic is going to leave on Asia's social and political fabric. And if you, if you look at a simple thing like the Asian financial crisis, uh, which was much smaller in scale and geographic scope uh, than the pandemic, uh, you had real substantive change in Southeast Asia as a result. I mean, President Suharto was toppled 
as a result of the financial crisis. There was deep change in Thailand and Malaysia. Unfortunately, many of those have been rolled back. So pandemics will have a long-term impact on Asia. How that's going to manifest itself is, is very hard to predict at this early stage. Sorry, I, I just—I guess I heard you yeah, say that, that maybe those changes are exactly what's needed. I mean, you, you referred to Asia's old men, you, the detachment, um, some of the corruption, some of the aspects of what has no longer working for Asia could be overturned in the event of a crisis uh, prompted perhaps by COVID. Might that not be a good thing for the region, albeit a bit painful? Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the question is, do you need prolonged, protracted unrest in Asia in order to force change? Or do you need uh, the better alternative of Asian leaders recognizing this is the time to reset and use the pandemic as an opportunity to do that? And I've seen very little evidence uh, of Asian political leaders showing a change in behavior uh, as a result of the pandemic. And we can, we can already see through the climate change challenge that they face. Uh, uh, you've got, you know, major Asian urban agglomerations, Jakarta, uh, 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 certainly Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City face the risk of sinking. And, you know, in Indonesia, they're making some of these efforts to change the national capital. Uh, but every year uh, that they don't act, every year you, you're seeing uh, that uh, flooding and natural disasters are having an impact on the poor. So if they can ignore that challenge, it gives me very little optimism that they're going to look at the pandemic as a way to reset. Hmm. Well, Vatsuki, you've raised the red flag and uh, people are listening. So I'll be curious to see how we come through this and whether or not uh, it does evoke some change or some shifts. Um, I, I feel that um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally feel some hope that Asia has demonstrated through the time I've been here some extraordinary resiliency. And, and I, I'm, I'm thinking and hoping that, you know, even though we, there's a lot of question marks out there, that once again, there's the opportunity for them to bounce back. Uh, it sounds to me, though, that, you know, really what's lacking uh, from your, your assessment is that social mobility, uh, the, inst- the strength of the institutions and the old guard, which somehow are preventing uh, uh, change. It would, would I, have I largely captured some of the key themes that you feel must change in order for, there to, uh, for us to, to see uh, Asia shift? Yes, absolutely. That's the foundation on which a new Asia should be built. And I'll be very, very pleased to be proven wrong. Uh, uh, this is not, um, I did not write the book uh, with the thesis of the coming collapse of, of Asia. Uh, you know, I've really written from the thesis that uh, you're seeing a lot of red flags in the region, which the political and business class can address. So I, I hope in, in many, many ways that I'm proven wrong at the end of the day. Fasuki, thank you so much for your time. That was my conversation with Vasuki Shastri, senior fellow at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and author of the new book, Has Asia Lost It? As noted in the outset of our conversation, it's difficult to speak about Asia as one contiguous mass. Indeed, it's a hodgepodge of political systems, cultural traditions, and economic aspirations. But what the countries of Asia do have in common is a pressing need for transformation. 
Basuki points specifically to evidence of growing disharmony between the populace and their respective leaders. While Myanmar and Hong Kong are two of the most recent and extreme examples, dis-ease comes in many forms. Look to a more insidious erosion of trust, he says, in markets where domestic policies increasingly favor the elite at the expense of the disenfranchised. That's where you'll find the next wave of dislocation. While most of Asia's problems are resolvable through domestic policies, he says, change won't come easy. Entrenched interests in business and government have grown complacent with power. Many of Asia's large conglomerates rose to their current levels of wealth and status on the basis of concessions doled out half a century ago to national leaders who needed allies. One hand now feeds the other. The pandemic, of course, has challenged much of this. COVID and climate change have accelerated the policy timeframes. Prior to the crisis, Asian leaders weighed the demand for change against the broader economic interests. Now, failure to move and move fast could spell the demise of their national economies and their future political prospects. Take healthcare, for instance. COVID has revealed weaknesses in the system. Too few hospital beds were always a problem, particularly in less developed markets. At the height of the crisis, the shortage often meant the difference between life and death. For a while, the trend was moving in the direction of modern disease management. In the wake of the crisis, however, some countries are seriously reevaluating their health care plans to reincorporate preventive care and universal access. That's good for the broader population and good for future pandemic management. The list of policy prerogatives runs deep. Every country in Asia will make its choices and assume the trade-offs. For a while, there were concerns that commitments to sustainability goals would falter. There are encouraging signs, however, that the crisis has in fact amplified the need to do something about climate change where the evidence is clear. Developing countries are most exposed environmentally and socially. Vasuki shovels a lot at the reader, and though he claims he's happy to be proved wrong, his eight circles of hell assessment of the Asia problem leaves only marginal room for hope. Accelerated change rarely comes in the wake of progressive policy development. More often than not, it occurs when a situation bottoms out and new leaders arrive, peacefully or not, to lead the next wave. Is this a warning call to Asia's entrenched interests? You bet it is. Not quite sure? Then read Fasuki's book and ask yourself, has Asia lost it? That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share our program with friends and colleagues. We're nearly 180 episodes in and all our conversations are available free of charge. All you need do is subscribe by searching for Inside Asia wherever you search for and listen to podcasts. Each week, we introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com, leave your name and email address, and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from the discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening.